the one thing I did learn is that whenever we got a challenge, if you were willing to look at it, you could probably either divert it, turn it around, or sometimes really make it an opportunity. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Hey guys, it is RJ Singh here from the Ultra Habits Podcast, and thank you for joining us on another episode today. So today we dive deep into a story of family, community, perfection of craft, perseverance, and trend creation. Joseph William Foster, also known as Joe, was born in 1935 in Bolton, England. Joe's grandfather was the founder of J.W. Foster and Sons Athletic Shoes and the inventor of the spiked running shoe and the trainer. Joe and his late brother, Jeff were born into the J.W. Foster and family business, but on their return after two years away from home on national service, they started to ask questions. The year was 1955 and the brothers saw a business still deeply rooted in the 30s. The brothers founded Mercury Sports Footwear, which after 18 months, they changed its name to Reebok and the rest has been history. Folks, really hope you love the show. I never in a million years thought I'd be talking to the founder of Reebok, so it was super cool for me there were a lot of takeaways. So without further ado, I welcome Joe Foster to the Ultra Habits Show. Thank you for the invitation. That's a, you've almost told the story there, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> it but, was a uh, pleasure. <laughs> it was a mouthful, and I always get tongue-tied on the J.W. Foster. I, I I don't know why. So I had to. Uh, I could see your beautiful dogs in the background too. Oh, the uh, <clears throat> yes, the glass door. Yes. It, it does sort of present the image and make it a, a nice big room. <laughs> I like it. I like it. So, so Joe, thanks for joining us today. Um, what I'll do is we'll kick off with growing up in a family business. So steeped in tradition, three generations strong. Can you talk to us about what that was like? Well, I mean, I, I was born, as you explained, in 1935 which was only four years away from World War II. And World War II didn't end until uh, 1945. So the biggest part of my sort of younger growing up was during the war. No lights, uh, nothing much going on. But of course, as kids, you don't know anything different. You just enjoy it. In front, you probably enjoyed it as much as anybody would without it being a war. We didn't even know there was a war on. We, you understand it, but you don't really you don't really take in what that means. You know, we, we could uh, stand in our bedroom at night, the air raid warns going, uh, all the sirens, and, uh, and see the bombs lighting up Manchester. But I, I guess in a way, you just take that in as a child does. You just take it in. So growing up, father went to work in the morning. Um, he came back and then he'd go to the pub in those days. I think that's what... The, the, the parent did or the father did he went to the pub and if he wasn't going to the pub during the war he was uh, doing the dad's army bit home guard <clears throat> so really we were brought up more by mother and we didn't see an awful lot of uh, father but uh, it was nice it was a good childhood uh, and like I said we were too young to analyze what goes on during war and there was a fun that when they uh, when the sirens went off, we had to dash into the shelter 
Um, he did that for, say, a couple of years, then everybody just became complacent. So, you know, they don't drop the bombs elsewhere. We're, we're, we're not important. So, uh, <clears throat> so life, yeah, life was good. But uh, as, as we know during the book, um, I, I was a runner, not a very good runner. Well, I wasn't too bad, actually, but I didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. It was something like, you know, I preferred kicking a football about. Yeah, running. right. But, yeah. You know, the business was running shoots. And so father thought I should be a runner. And of course, you put a pair of spikes on a kid in 1948. And not many of the children around us had even seen a pair of spike shoes. So I could win races. Uh, and probably like my grandfather when he won his first race, making his own pair of shoes in 1895. Everybody looked and said, cheat. You know, what are you doing in, the, in those things? But uh, it was in, that, in 1948, in, in one of the races, that I won Webster's Dictionary. And that's well in the book. And Webster's Dictionary is an American dictionary, which is, uh, well, I, I don't even know to this day why in 1943 I would win an American dictionary. Um, maybe because a lot of Americans were over there in the UK. It was the war. And uh, so it is. But then, as you say, in, in, uh, in 1958, we, we, we tried so much to, uh, to get my father and uncle to understand the fact that business was changing. We'd had our two years in the forces and it did, did to change our attitude. You know, mother wasn't making your meals. She wasn't making a bed. She wasn't washing your clothes. You know, you were having to look after yourself. Um, prior to going in the forces, both Jeff and I, during the war, we, we joined the scouting movement. So we were pretty well used to the idea of looking after ourselves a bit and doing things. And our scoutmaster was... Uh, was, was quite a dedicated scoutmaster. It wasn't just turning up and having fun. You have to do things as well as have fun. So we, we were prepared for national service, but uh, it did change our lives. So that when we came out, we look at a family company. Grandfather had started it in, 19, in 1895, and he had got his idea from his grandfather. And his grandfather, he, he was a cobbler down in, uh, in, in Nottingham. Uh, and uh, he repaired cricket boots. And grandfather used to go down there to learn the trade because he wanted to be a cobbler as well. And he, he obviously asked his granddad, why have these cricket boots got spikes in the bottom? Well, it gives them more grip. When they're batting, when they're bowling, they need that grip, not much slipping. And I think that must have been his light bulb moment because back in Bolton, he, he was part of Bolton Primrose Harriers. Um, he, he was sort of a let say a midfield runner, he'd end up halfway down the, the rest. But after making himself a pair of shoes, he came a very unlikely second. Yeah. And, and that drew attention. I really drew attention. So uh, that was the start of his business. And in the early 1900s, uh, he had world records. He had gold medals being won. We were saying the 1920s, that's when uh, Eric Liddell, Harold Abrams and Lord Burley, they all won gold medals. Right. And, uh, and then, I don't know if you've heard of the film Chariots of Fire. Yeah. They were the three athletes that were immortalized in Chariots of Fire. And of course, my grandfather, also called Joe, he, uh, <clears throat> he made the shoes. So he could make lots of claims. And, and you know, neither Jeff or I knew that much about grandfather. When we joined the company, somehow, yes, we knew grandfather had started the company and uh, 
It was doing what it was doing, which was making uh, spike shoes for athletes. Very good. But it's only <clears throat> sort of went into Reebok when the business was growing and we decided to look back that we, we found out that our grandfather was quite a genius. You know what I mean? In, in talk about influencers, mm. he knew how to influence because he would give shoes to mm. winners, people who would win. And when they won and they won in his shoes, everybody else wanted his shoes. I mean, today it's the same, but today we're influencing street. So, so the big thing, big, but <clears throat> yeah, I mean, going back to the question growing up, yes, growing, growing up was just like ordinary kids. We didn't know a war was any different than peace. Uh, until it came along and all of a sudden the lights came on again. <laughs> and so th that was the difference. Just on that, Joe, reflecting back, how do you feel growing up in an environment that was, you might have been used to the war and the fact that there were raids and bombings, but it's not normal, but you normalized it. Reflecting back, how did growing up in an environment with that type of tension, do you feel it impacted you in any way, positively or negatively? I think more positive than negative. How? I think, well, how it brought people together. We had a common cause. There was a, a common enemy. There was something that was sort of, you know, the parents that they had to make sacrifices, they did things differently. And, you know, in, in those days, we, every, everybody really went to church. Mm -hmm. And the church was the social gathering for everybody. So, and, and, and I think that during the war, as I say, people came together more. People had that common enemy. And, you know, your parents, of course, my, my father didn't, uh, he wasn't called up. He was in a reserve industry because he was repairing army boots during the war. And, uh, but a lot of the uh, neighbors and people around, they were called up and some didn't come back. So there was that community spirit, which, I, I, and I, I think we're losing that community spirit these days. You know, the enemy now is within rather than outside. It, and, I, and I think that, that focused us a lot. So yeah, I think we, uh, we, we probably, in an odd way benefited. It's interesting that because I know your views on globalization and I know that you probably walk a fine line given your history with Reebok and understanding sometimes the need to outsource because of manufacturing costs. And I, I get that impact on community and, and I suppose what happens through a globalized world is not necessarily always, always good. I want to talk about your your grandfather and your dad and your uncle. In the book, the way that you perceive your grandfather, whether it's just the perception of a grandchild, is one of this larger than life positive force. Your 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 dad and your uncle, however, seem to have kind of fallen a bit far from the tree in the sense that it seems like you and Jeff have more of your grandfather's um, spirit. Why do you think your dad and your uncle struggled so much? Have you ever, have you reflected upon that? I, oh, many times. And uh, uh, we, we didn't really notice uh, a great deal of a problem until we 
come back out of uh, doing two years. Jeff joined the company four years before I did. He's two years older than me, right. but he joined four years before me because I, I, I did an extra two years at college. Um, and I, I didn't join the company until I was 17. And it, I was only there for 12 months and then I was off two years in uh, doing national service. Jeff had done four years in the company. Um, but uh, we didn't really grasp the fact that uh, father and uncle just didn't speak. Uh, oh, my, my, my uncle, he was looking after uh, <clears throat> the traditional side of the company, which was hand-sewn turn shoes. So you turn the shoe inside out and you sew the saw. And that, that was really what, it, what grandfather had uh, started. And I, I think my father must have been a bit sort of, um, I can say, a bit of a renegade in his time because he did see the fact that we needed to do a lower price because hand-sewn shoes were expensive. Um, so he thought we needed to do a lower price shoe, which was doing it, although handmade, it was machine-sewn instead of hand-sewn. <clears throat> so he'd set up the machine-sewn side and Uncle Bill, he, he stayed with the tradition. Um, I guess they were both right doing what they were doing, but that may have been how they pulled apart mm. because there were two separate companies within one small factory mm. and they, they, they did their own bookkeeping. So Bill would do his bookkeeping and, and, and I think somewhere around here, it just, they just fell apart and they didn't speak. And when we came back, we, we had to pull them apart more often. Than they would fight. And you know, we're trying to get them to work together to uh, <laughs> to do some marketing. We've got to build a company, and uh, and my father used to say to me, "Well, look, you know, when we are gone and whatever, this will be your company." And I like it. Look, Dad, number one, we don't want you to go. That's not our <laughs> not our motive in life. But number two is there will be no company. This company will go before you do, mm. because unless we change, unless we become today and make shoes and, and, and understand the business. Unless we do that, there'll be no company. And this is what drove us uh, to leave the company eventually. And, and that's my, my next topic actually, is this concept of knowing when to walk. You mentioned it twice throughout the book, the first time from J.W. Foster's and also Reebok. And I think it's really important to, for our guests to understand where you were coming from so how does one know when to walk, Joe, when it's time to leave? Well, I think it's when you can make a difference or when you can't make a difference. And we, we had to leave JW Foster's to make a difference. Mm. We had to do that. Uh, when I left uh, Reebok at the end of 1989, it's because I couldn't make a difference. Um, we were big. And by that time, you've got lawyers, you've got accountants, and you've got people who can dream up packages and numbers. So it's a numbers game then. And uh, I guess that um, throughout my life, I've liked the adventure, the challenge, and, and being able to make that difference and change. Uh, I, I spent a good 10 years, no computers, no mobile phones. <laughs> the best thing I had was a calculator. <clears throat> And I had to go around, I was going around the world meeting people and making decisions. You, know, you couldn't even go and pick up a telephone, a landline and dial it. That didn't happen. You had to be in a hotel and you had to go through reception 
and they would use the telephone people to get you a call. And then you'd have to be in your room and wait for the call coming through, which could be one hour, two hours. Sometimes it was a day later. Life must be so difficult if you're an impatient entrepreneur, Joe, back then. Well, well, yes, you just made decisions Mm. and you got on with it. And I I think, I don't even think the word entrepreneur was known in those days. I think it was a challenge. It was business. You needed to do things. So so you you did things. And uh, when you think about it, you're doing all you just couldn't refer to anybody. This wasn't a matter of uh, chatting with somebody. You know, why did you leave in 1989? Well, because I was at 35,000 feet for uh, as much as was on the ground. And I was going to wherever place because I, I, I set up the international distribution. So I had about 27 to 30 countries that I'd actually put on and work with. Okay, we started splitting up into regions and zones. You know, all this happened, um, and, it, and it still goes on today. But in those early days, I was doing all that traveling, mm. and uh, so I, I, I would be picked up at an airport by a limousine. I'd be taken to the best hotels. We, we'd go out dining at the best, finest uh, uh, restaurants, and we'd talk a bit about business. But business was going on over here. <laughs> We talk a bit, and we more or less reflect on history rather than on worse things going today. So, uh, right, I got to the point. No challenge. What am I doing at, uh, at thirty-five thousand feet? You know, and, and we'd, we'd gone through the company, which had grown rapidly. You know, when we uh, when we got into the aerobics, that took us from nine billion to nine hundred billion in about five years, four or five years. It was just a, a rocket ride, and we become part of Hollywood. We had all the uh, all the stars wearing our shoes. We did a wonderful tournament in Monte Carlo. Uh, uh, professionals, uh, pro am thing, a, a celebrity, pro celeb event, <clears throat> and there was no shortage of celebrities. They were all there, happy to uh, come along and spend some time in Monte Carlo. And you know, and I. Uh, you know, I went into the palace, met Prince Rainier, and you know, shared some champagne. And you think, great. But when once I've done that, and what you, I'm thinking, what am I doing? You know, there is more to life than just sort of flying around. Yeah. So I decided to step back. But it's a bit like Hotel California. Yes. You can. You can never leave. You never leave. Or like. Or like. Or like That's the. Right. Julie, oh. can you hear me? Or like the mafia. Yes. (laughs) So, so Joe, there's there's a book uh, that I read not too long ago called Small Giants, and it talks about businesses that intentionally stay small with the aim of being great. Now, obviously, Reebok was quite different, but one of the the things they talked about, which I couldn't help but correlate to Reebok's journey, was Reebok's focus on craft attention to craft and Reebok's intrinsic connection to Bolton. Now, can you talk about craft and community and what that means to you? Well, I never considered myself a good shoemaker, Hmm. but I could design. And uh, 
And, and I think that when, you, uh, when you're part of an industry, you have to know what is driving this business. And, and it means you have to do some things different. In the UK, we were not the only sports footwear manufacturer, but we, we connected. We connected with the sport. A lot of people made football boots. Some made running shoes, but they were manufacturers. They had a, a factory. They had the ability to, to make these things, but they didn't connect. They, they weren't part of athletics or rugby or football. And, and, I, and I think you have to craft your business to be in. in and so people looked at us <clears throat> and thought, we were brilliant. You know, go to Reebok. You know, if you've got a sport, they will, they will work with you. And as in fact, Adidas did over in, uh, in Germany. And, and Nike, Nike, when they eventually came on, they worked inside, <clears throat> worked in the business. So I think you've got to do that. So your craft really is not so much your product. Your product is a result of your craft. Your craft is being part of what you are supplying. And, and we became part of that. And so they looked at us, in fact, a lot of the big companies, Barter, in fact, um, took shoes from us because we were making something that actually worked, mm. not just uh, a product. I, <clears throat> I remember one of our uh, competitors, I think it was Hedleman Sim. We made rugby boots. And uh, the rugby boot had a facing that went right down the front of the shoe and a, a, a toe cap that just joined onto the facing. So it just went straight down right front and that was it. There was nice lines. And uh, I, I found one of the boots that were, and I picked up this boot and the toe cap was bigger than the, the facing straps. And I'm looking at that, I'm thinking, why did that happen? And I can only think, because we were a small company, Foster's, this is Foster's, Foster's were a small company and they made mistakes. But you know, people, and people don't know what the mistake is. So we had probably put a boot out there because they just copied our boot. We were probably, and somebody in our factory had put the wrong toe on, and they, their bags that they picked it up, they didn't know it was wrong. Yeah. They were, they were a factory. So every one of their boots would be exactly like that boot. You know, we, we, were, we were a bit sort of not that mm. <laughs> um, perfect. We made the right boots, it did the job, but we could make simple mistakes. So <clears throat> this, 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 this was the headman saying, did they, were they part? No, they weren't designing the boots for rugby players. They were looking at us who designed boots for rugby players. So, yeah, and that was it. So this is our craft. And that, that I think it, uh, it, it is the difference and it means an awful lot. So you're saying that the real competitive advantage is being able to connect with the consumer and understand the design in response to what the consumer wants. That's the competitive advantage there. Absolutely, you 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 just got to make that uh, that difference, and uh, <clears throat> uh, and rugby again, rugby is a is a, is a good example. We we really made uh, rugby boots for rugby league, mm -hmm. and uh, the the players would come in, Jim Sullivan from Wigan and Bernard Ganley. You won't know them, but Bernard Ganley held held the kicking record because once uh, you, you you score the try, you come back and you kick. And he came in and he wanted a boot with a square toe. So instead of it being round, 
And so we had to hammer the toes square for him. Um, so he had, yeah, we had this square. <clears throat> so then everybody who was a kicker in, right. in rugby had to have a square toe. <laughs> and so, so that, is, that is working. I mean, now they don't even have hard toes. <laughs> they use the inside of the boot. But so it's a different you, technique. You, you were mm. using influencers before influencing was a thing. Absolutely. Well, that, that again is, you say, you know, you look at a grandfather. We, we didn't know that much about grandpa, but the more you look back, the more you saw that this was, he was using influencers. He was supplying, we, we have um, a replica of a 1920s letterhead from J.W. Foster's. And on it, down each side, it says, we supply, and there's 96 teams. Nearly every football team you can mention are on it. Man United, Man City, Liverpool, you, you know, they're all on there. <clears throat> and, and, and lots of rugby clubs. And he supplied those. And to this day, I mean, we, we found this late, but to this day, I can't tell you uh, how sad it is. Jeff and I, didn't know that somewhere this between my father and uncle that gap there's something that didn't cross and yeah. we had to learn later yeah you know we had to learn it and you know i often think hey they must have been the biggest the best football boot manufacturers in in the world in 1920 you know and, and during the 20s and yet yeah you, you think but it was was late we picked this up so late but I think Jeff and I probably had that DNA that said, you know, we, we can understand we need to do things. I, I, I felt, I felt, I got a sense through the book that your dad and your uncle had a problem with alcohol and they were bitter. They were embittered. There was something quite, they weren't happy. Would you say that was right? <clears throat> I would say there was... That was, there was a big element in there because my uncle did, he, he died an alcoholic, um, which was a shame. He was a nice guy, but then again, you could, you know, so, you know, if you were near to him, you could smell the rum and he would leave at lunchtime and go and he would still he would drink at lunchtime as well. I think, <laughs> now, now I think back and I think, even when you're totally sober. And the factory, great, right, and yeah. The, yeah. The, the machinery we <laughs> Yeah, how we, how we can, how, how everybody had the fingers, I don't know. Could you imagine safe, op, occupational and health and safety nowadays going into the factories? <laughs> they, they, wouldn't have, they wouldn't have gone through the front door. They would take one look and shut it down. <clears throat> no, we, had, we had this press which used to punch out the soles. And it was a massive thing. It must have weighed about two tons with a big sort of hammer that came down and you had a wooden block and then you got the, uh, the knife which you put underneath. And sometimes this would, it had a clutch. You press the thing and it would drop bang and then the clutch would stop it. Sometimes the clutch didn't work. So you get a double bang. <laughs> and you, you can imagine that, yeah, you go bang, bang. And you, you've got your hand holding the, uh, uh, the knife. So yes. And, and again, they were using belts to drive the machinery. So these belts were not covered, open, big leather belts. Yes, I, <laughs> I look back now and I think health and safety, wow, <clears throat> that would have been incredible. Mm. But, uh, you know, I, I guess in those days, 
that's how it was. You know, nobody, nobody even thought about it. You lost the um, arm, you lost an arm. <laughs> right? Something like that, yes, yes. I know in, <clears throat> even in Reebok, when, in our early days, we used to have a machine that roughed up the sole. You know, you, you've got the leather, you need to rough it up in order for the leather, for the, rub, for the adhesive to, to work into it. And this was just a, just a motor <clears throat> with, with a spindle uh, and a, <clears throat> a wire brush on one side. And uh, <clears throat> we only ever had one problem, <clears throat> excuse me. And that was, what? Well, and I don't know, I mean, I wasn't in, but Jeff used to run the factory, but we, uh, he, he loved the factory and, and I, I did everything else. Um, but this young boy was on the machine and he had a jumper on, a woolen jumper, and he got caught. Oh no. <clears throat> I mean, fortunately it stopped the machine. <laughs> right. He, he was wrapped into it. They had to sort of almost cut him out of it. Oh wow! He, he, he didn't. He, he didn't get injured or anything. But see, there were just no no sort of safety devices or anything in those days. I'm sure so, he'd uh, wear a wooden, yeah. woolen sweater the next day, Joe. No, no, I don't think he did. No, <laughs> that was the wrong thing to wear. But again, um, during the winter, you know, the the factories were quite cold. Uh, there was no really uh, no central heating. We did have a heating system which would blow hot uh, air down. But when you're blowing air, it it, it didn't, isn't necessarily warm. It might be warm if you feel it, but when it's blowing, it's still quite cold. But um, yes, the factory days were quite incredible days. But <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. So um, one of the one of the things that I really loved within the the story in the book was this concept of finding your gatekeepers, this interesting character, John Willie Johnson, and this whole piece on being open to opportunity and creating your own luck. So can you unpack that a little bit, Joe, this concept of gatekeepers and, and opportunity identification? And Yeah, well, I think that, uh, as I said, Jeff loved to be in the factory. Uh, and so you do everything else. And that included design. I mean, I was, I was doing a lot of design. Jeff loved the factory. He was also a member of the athletic club and a member of the cycling club. So he was a good connection, <clears throat> but that was just straight. So I, I did, I did the, the rest of it. And uh, during those early days of Reebok, we didn't have any money. And uh, it, it was the time when the government had decided uh, manufacturing was not what we would do in the UK. We would be technology. So the clothing industry and the footwear industry, that required uh, lots of workers. And as far as they were concerned, that can go to the Far East. So really, it, it wasn't a good time. And all the factories, so many factories in the UK were just going out of business. And I would say probably two a month would go out of business. And what happened then is that everything that they had uh, came up for auction. So I would go at least once a month, maybe twice a month to the auctions. So I could probably buy a sewing machine. I could probably buy one of these, or maybe there's some leather I could buy. This is great. And uh, it was one, I, um, I went to one place and I bought a lot of leather. And my van, my van was like a, a speedboat, of course. Unfortunately, a policeman did notice that I looked more like a speedboat than a, than a van. And uh, so I got stopped for that and fined. 
And I'd been going down to these places and I, I, uh, I'd seen this guy called John Willie Johnson. He was at the fr- always at the front on the auction. And uh, the auctioneer would, he'd go around, and if nobody bid, because there were so many bits and pieces of rubbish that nobody ever bid for, he would just look at John, and John would just nod, <laughs> pass on. <clears throat> and at the, end, <clears throat> at the end of the auction, he would, they would go together into a room and decide how much that was all worth. And, that, and then John would take it all away. <clears throat> but I, I'm sitting next to him on this occasion, and we're having a little bit of a chat. And I told him, oh, I said, last, last time I bought the leather and I got pulled up. Uh, he said, Joe, he said, uh, you, you don't need to pick anything. Said, my, my men come down to every auction. <clears throat> you know, whatever you buy, just leave it and my men will bring it back. Oh, so thanks, John. Like, you know, I'll pay you for it. No, no, he said, you know, they're going down there. Why, why bother paying the will do that? So we got chatting, really got chatting, really got friendly. <clears throat> and he, he, well, he invited me to his, 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 his factory, which was two big mills, big in Baker, John, J.W. Johnson, I think. And uh, I went through and we went into his, his warehouse where he kept all this stuff that he bought at every auction. Oh, little stuffed animals, big crocodiles, birds, you know, everything that you could what imagine. What doing uh, with it? Did he just like to collect stuff? Like, is he eccentric? Oh, definitely eccentric, yes. But I, I think it was his passion. His passion was just to go down there and enjoy doing it. <laughs> I mean, these days people do house clearances. Right. <clears throat> Yeah. He did. He did factory clearances. What <laughs> <laughs> whatever didn't sell, John Miller would take it and put it into his warehouse. And uh, I mentioned in the book, I, uh, I see this machine. It's a pounding up machine. You you wouldn't know what a pounding up machine is, but it takes the crinkles out of when when you're lasting uh, a product, lasting a shoe. Uh, the leather's fairly hard. It leaves little wrinkles in. You put it on the pounding up machine. And it just pounds all these out. And for the room we needed one of those, I said, John, pounding up machine, uh, can I buy it? He said, no, we can't buy it. Well, can I rent it off you then? No. Oh, sorry. Well, he said, you can have it. Oh, thank you, John. When you're done with it, just give it me back. <laughs> and not only did he sort of give it to me, he had his men bring it and install it in the factory. So... Why do you think, Joe, why do you think he showed you that kindness? That's one of the things that you never articulated in the book as to why he he took you under his wing. Why do you think he did that? Uh, well, I think uh, the auctioneer was the same because the auctioneer, every time I bid for anything, you know, he'd say, come on, guys, come on, guys. Look, look this guy's no money. <laughs> <laughs> and he can, he's still buying <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to help you out. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> so we became a bit of a legend there in the fact that, yeah, well, Reebok is fine. We're no money, we're a small company, but we're still there. <laughs> we're still going. Right. All these people are going out of business. And, and, and I think that uh, Johnny Johnson, I think, he, I think he, he enjoyed that and he enjoyed our chats because he looked and uh, he said, Reebok, uh, yeah, yeah. He, he could see that if there was a company going to succeed, it would be Reebok. Because of you or the brand? Well, 
I, I think I personified the brand at that time. Yeah, right. Okay. Because he saw the brand through me. We were in sports footwear. And, uh, you know, we went through many recessions during my time, many recessions, but Reebok never had a recession. And I wondered, why has Reebok got a recession? Because sport was the thing that kept growing. Sport grew and grew. Sport always grew, didn't have a recession. So whilst the footwear industry that, that went down at times, had, had bad times, the, the recession never, never affected us. We just kept growing slowly and slowly. <clears throat> and you went to some of these auctions and you'd find there's a production line and there's one, two, there's three spaces where there's no machine. And why was that? Because it was called British United Shoe Machinery, part of the American United Machine Machinery Company. They used to rent these, these out. So <clears throat> you'd pay a minimum rent. Then you'd pay so much for every pair that you oh, wow. produce. And of course, when the, when the business goes down and you can't do it, that's what drives you out of business. So we learned that pretty soon. Don't get any of these uh, rental uh, How do they machines. know how many shoes you make in those days, Joe? Surely they didn't have technology monitoring it. Did they, was it an honor system? <laughs> uh, no, they had, they had quite, a, quite a good system of, uh, of monitoring, yes. They, they could tell because th these machines were putting nails in. Ah, so, right. So, so they, had, they had a good idea as to, as to what you were doing. So, yeah, you know, the more nails that you put in, the more. And it probably was very much like half a penny for a dozen nails. But by the time you'd finished, it was, it was mounted. And it was there. And the, and the sort of the standard rent was there anyway. You still had to pay whether it was 50 pounds a month or whatever. Um, yeah, in whatever day, it really drove a lot of these people out of business. Mm. So, uh, the, I learned the lesson early on. No, no, we don't. We don't go to that. We'll we'll see if we can buy some of the old machinery, and you, you could buy it for nothing. We set up our factory for maybe one hundred and fifty pounds because you could buy some of the machines for twenty five pounds. Not a lot of money, but you know there were big stuff, heavy stuff. Um, and that's why we had to put them around the side of the, uh, the factory. They were more mechanical than hydraulic or pneumatic. That, those came in. Pneumatics and hydraulics came in later. But when we first started, they were more mechanical. So things had to... I mean, that big press I was talking about, when J.W. Foster's closed down eventually and he, he had to shut the factory, he asked us, father asked us, well, do you want any of my machinery? And at that time, we were actually buying cut soles from a local manufacturer who would cut them for us. If we took the machine, we would cut our own, which meant it would save us, well, save us stocking things. It would, it would be more convenient. And we did this, but as you've read in the book, we had a factory, we had an old brewery. But whatever it was, the ground floor, there were no windows in. So we couldn't use that. <clears throat> The middle floor was fine. Yeah, great. The top floor, the, the roof was so bad that there was water coming in all over and there were more buckets and tin cans and everything collecting water uh, than we could use. So we're on that middle floor, but that middle floor was not the securest. And uh, we, did, we did get this machine from, uh, uh, from my father and that in itself was an experience because we had to take it up a set of stairs. And we were talking about two tons. I mean, this was a big machine. And we had to slide it up these stairs. 
and uh, we use a, uh, a pulley and, and chains and we leaving it up. And there was myself and another young guy we just taking on behind it, pushing. And I, I do think today, what happened if that machine had slipped? If something had gone, we would have been nothing at the bottom of that. So you do think how close you get on occasions to think, well, hmm. But however, we did get it up and we tried to sort of use a crowbar underneath it to get it across the floor. But every time I put the crowbar underneath it and lifted, the crowbar would just go straight through the floor. You know, oh, can't do that. So we, we had to get blocks of wood and get it onto the wood and then we could crowbar it in place. But then when we did get it in place and we got Norman, our clicker, using this, every time it came down, the floor went oh. <laughs> So we had to shore up underneath to make sure that that didn't take take the floor. But yeah, again, we did our own electricity. We did everything. You know, you, and you learn an awful lot, but the problem is you learn a dangerous amount. Mm. You, you learn how to do some things with electricity, but uh, you're not really that knowledgeable. You can connect two wires and you can change it from a machine to go backwards, but... <laughs> Yes. In your in the story, you guys were continuously battling, and how in terms of when things got really difficult, how did your grandfather's legacy and J. W. Foster impact your will to succeed? Like, it, had you not come from J. W. Foster and your grandfather not been who he was, do you feel that you would have had the strength of resolve? Was that a big part of your driver? <clears throat> I think so. I think it, our, our upbringing, our, the way we looked at life, that um, you always move forward, you're always optimistic because you know you, you, your glass of wine is either half full or half empty. In life, you're either going forward or you're going back. You can not, never plateau. You know, a plateau is somewhere where you jump off to die. It's like, you know, no, we have to keep going. So it was all a matter of, uh, you have a dream. You know, you, you, you think you're going to be as big as Adidas or you're going to get somewhere. You're going, and, and so it was always, well, these, these are challenges. And the one thing I did learn is that whenever we got a challenge, if you were willing to look at it, you could probably either divert it, turn it around, or sometimes really make it an opportunity. Uh, we, we can say that right, we started off as Mercury Sports Footwear and we found we couldn't register that. And by the chances as we went, and I found Reebok in my dictionary that we were talking about, RWB, okay, a small South African gazelle. Spelled the wrong way, which, well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's the way. on the American dictionary, right? That's right. Yeah. In the Oxford English, it would have been R-H-E be okay and which would have been not, weird <laughs> been weird i don't i don't i think it would have gone past it but rwe be okay i mean it it, it actually uh engendered sort of a, a lot of different ideas like when we when we used to repair our shoes you know we could put on repairs rwe and things like that and resole rwe and <clears throat> so with a lot of uh a lot of things good and and we box I came out of Reebok, Reebok for W and for so you know these sort of things came out of it. But uh, <clears throat> now, was that luck? You know, you, you think it's misfortune. You can't use your name, and then all of a sudden you find out something 
better. Joe, just I want to touch on that. You said something in the book that's super important, and I really relate to it. And I actually think that it's probably one of the only few things I do really well is make the connection between ideas and people. And you figure out how to get where you need to go, leveraging both. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, well, with everything, I think it's, it was the same after we got our, our name, you, you think a little bit, you see something. And I think you, you, you've got to be looking for the opportunity, not looking for how do we, oh, we're in a problem here. If this is a problem, we've, we've got to get over this. Instead of thinking of the problem, you're thinking of the opportunity. Um, and it was the same, we've been in business about four years and we got a letter from Adidas because our, our silhouette was two stripes and a T-bar. And of course, Adidas complained that was three stripes and you know, they, they would sue us if we continue. And you think, hmm, but it don't. It was great. We thought, wow, all of a sudden, Adidas know we're here. Yeah, we've made it. We got, we got them worried. You know, they need to write us a letter to, to say we're infringing. <laughs> it's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. It was like, wow, that's great. What do we do? Oh, we had a silhouette there, two stripes. So we changed the silhouette. And we change it into what we see now, which is the, uh, the vector, uh, which is more of an arrow. Great. And uh, so we now have a different, uh, a different silhouette. <clears throat> and then I happen to uh, uh, be very well in with the local Saab now. And, and I was driving a nice Saab car. And the guy in Manchester said, Joe, can you come along? Because uh, Sebastian Cole, Sebco is now sort of head of, I think it's International Athletics, is it? Sebco. He said, we, we sponsor it. Oh, I said, fine. I said, but uh, yeah, it's nice. I'll come along. Came along. Can, can you make a pair of shoes for it? And I said, well, he's, uh, he's, he's sponsored by Nike. Don't be difficult, really. I can't really make it. He said, well, instead of putting Reebok on, can you put Saab on it? And he gave me a couple of uh, pieces of... Uh, there were labels that they used to sew onto clothes just to say, this is sad. Ah, so I'll see what I can do. And I went back and of course we had this arrow shape and I thought, I can't stitch this on. Maybe if I cut a little window into it and sew it in behind, that'd work. And it did. And I take these shoes along with no sign of Reebok apart from the silhouette was Reebok, but it was sad in, the, in this window. And I gave them to, to Seb. I had a photograph, me and Seb Cole. I'm giving this pair of free box. I, I don't think we do really print it, but I don't know these days, maybe one of you never know. <clears throat> but I'm looking at these shoes and I think, wow, that looks pretty good that. Why don't we put Reebok in there? Mm. And that's how we started using the window with putting Reebok in. And you know, that comes about by something else drives the thinking. So you, this is, and, uh, and I mean, that window became quite, uh, quite a, an item, particularly when we're in, uh, we were doing say aerobics, when we had a nice, simple, pure white shoe with just this little window where Reebok and the Union Jack, and that Union Jack was just a, 
a dash of color. And the women loved it. Mm. So these things, I, I, I had the, uh, <clears throat> the star press, which looked a bit like the Union Jack. And when we first started off in, in America, first got born with our five-star shoes. Uh, and Paul said, can we use the Union Jack instead of the, uh, the, the star crest? I said, why? He said, well, it's going to cost me a million dollars, he said, to get, to get the star crest recognized. He said, but everybody in the USA knows the Union Jack. Oh, right. The UK, of course, it was a difficult, different story because the trade unions hated the idea that we were, by them, making shoes in Korea and put on a Union Jack. So we had lots of fun with that as it, as it happened. Um, but the Union Jack was incredible. <clears throat> with one on each shoe and we had the box. The lid was a Union Jack. And these were early days in our running uh, experiences in, in America. So selling the shoes down there, being a five-star shoe, of course, all of a sudden were lots of orders. That was, was great that we'd done that. I, I mean, I remember as an American kid opening a, a Reebok box with the, the Union Jack, you just felt like you had literally received shoes from the Queen. You know, <laughs> it, was, it was so regal, right? right. And yes. So clean. And there was definitely that sense of, wow, this is, this is royalty. <laughs> this shoe has come straight from Buckingham Palace. But um, it was quite, quite extraordinary. So we're now, you're building, you're building Reebok and you're working a lot. One of the things you touch on quite a lot in your, your book is how much you worked and there's a sense of i feel regret at times for the imbalance in terms of the family and and work and i feel that your view is that this imbalance is a must for anyone that goes all in so i guess my question is joe What's your view on going all in and trying to balance work and home life and reflecting now that you're well beyond where you were when you were building the business? Are there any regrets? People talk about regrets. <clears throat> no, there are no regrets. I mean, it's a bit sad sometimes, but you know, to, to sort of blame it on your business. I, I, I know my, my wife, my first wife, um, she used to say, why don't you get a proper job? <laughs> so many times, because <clears throat> we struggled. I mean, in those early, early days, it was a struggle. And, uh, but you, you had to keep fighting. You know, you just had to keep going. And uh, it was like, well, either somebody is with you <clears throat> and my wife was obviously with me. When I was 23, Jeff was 25, and we, we set up our own factory. We were young. You know, we were indestructible. You know, what could happen? Yeah, you know, we, we can do it. So with the two got, genes. Uh, with two the two genes. genes. <laughs> yes, two genes. Absolutely, yes. That, that, that was a bit of a confusion for the postman, of course. And the inland revenue. Not that we made much money, but... Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, um, <clears throat> but when it comes to it, I, I think uh, 
whether I did or I didn't convince my first wife that you know, you've got to become part of it. You know, <clears throat> we, we can't have two things. You, you've got the love for Reebok <clears throat> and you have a love for a family, but it's better if you can bring that together. Mm. Um, I mean, right now, you probably uh, received messages from Julie uh, and we're together. If, if we go anywhere now, it's two tickets. <clears throat> I must have Julie comes with me. We do it together. So we share a love and a passion. Now it's the passion for Shoemaker. We share that. Let's make it happen. Um, and, and I think that's what you need in those early days. I think the one probably distraction for that is having a family. Because when, if you have a family, um, the wife is usually then looking after children. But I, I, I think really uh, it, it is a matter of whether you will do things together. And, and, and I know I was talking with um, a guy in California who has Wolf and Shepherd, which is a nice men's shoe brand. <clears throat> but he and his wife work together. They, they work together on it. I, I think probably what, it, this, this becomes a bit of a sort of a, a dilemma because Jeff and I worked well together, but then we had two wives and I could never get on with Jeff's wife. Right. And, and it was always that tug between four people and Jeff, we never fell out. I can't remember ever having a crossword with Jeff. We didn't. <clears throat> he looked after the factory. I looked after more or less everything else until we had to bring people in. So I think it's how do you, how do you manage these things? Uh, the fact that Jeff and I worked together, I think, meant that we could, we could drive a company. We could make it happen. Um, then, then you've got your, your family life. And uh, towards the latter end, when we started to really make it, um, Jean came on one global trip. Mm, that turned but, pear-shaped. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could not believe what happened. I couldn't either. It's, wow. uh, it, was, it was quite incredible. I couldn't believe that uh, that, that would, at that point of time, I think, hey, hey, this is what you do all the time? Mm. No. No. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just the fact that, uh, as we've read in the book, those Japanese thought they were doing me a good favor. Wow, the British girls, uh, they might be stripping, but the British girls. <laughs> But you know, that, that, <clears throat> I think that's a bit of how life is. That uh, you know, I'd got used to cultures. I'd been traveling almost every culture in the world. So I was used to people doing different things, things you didn't really expect. Mm. Um, but once you got used to the idea, you're not phased. You, you've got one, what you're looking at is developing your brand. And what they're looking at is developing a relationship. So whatever, the people you meet do, they're only trying to improve that relationship and make you, uh, make you feel welcome. So, uh, <clears throat> yes, but she did travel later, one global trip, and of course, a couple of times, maybe, maybe three times, on the Monte Carlo uh, events, <clears throat> which were always very glamorous, with meeting all these different people. So, you know, she enjoyed that, which you, 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 know, you would do. But of course, <clears throat> it's everything that builds up in between. <clears throat> and unfortunately, she had 
a very close relationship with uh, our daughter because they were together. And uh, not that I had a close relationship, but it was different. And they were more friends, more my daughter. And unfortunately, when she died, of course, and uh, I think it was how we re reacted. It's not that either of us were not um, very, very sad at this event, but I think Jean had lost more. Jean had lost that friend that Sunday with, with the children. Um, and so it, it did eventually end our relationship. But uh, <clears throat> I mean, I, I look around and uh, it's not as though I'm the only one that's ever divorced no. you know, or, or that relationships go beyond that point. Mm. But I, I do think if you have something like Reebok or <clears throat> a passion for something and, you know, when we changed our name and I, I took the, the Reebok name to the patent agent and I said to them, look, we've got all these other names that you wanted, but we want that. We need to be in love with it. It has to be our passion. And, and, and I think that is it. If you're going to do something, it has to be a passion. If you're going to be successful, um, maybe, maybe people are lucky. And, and they, they win things without being passionately involved in it. But I don't know. It didn't work for me. It's the same reason why I left at the end. At the end, was the passion gone? Yeah, the company's big now. It's grown up. It, it, it can manage without me. Um, so the challenges and the passion, they have to be there. And if you can share them, brilliant. You know, that's how it should be. Um, but yes, it... It, it does cause a lot of, um, I don't say friction, but it does cause problems when you, when you have a company and eventually it gets so big and I was being drawn all over the place. And Jean had the opportunity to come, but she preferred to stay with the grandchildren and things like that, um, which doesn't, doesn't really help because it's nice when you, when you can go together. I mean, I remember so many things. I remember... Uh, stepping on the dance floor of Ginger Rogers uh, studio in, uh, in LA. And I, that vision is here still, but only I have that vision. Mm. If you've got somebody with you, you'd share that. Mm. And, uh, and, and that, for me, that, that, that's the difference. Try, try to work together. Yeah, I think that was the piece that wasn't necessarily clear in the book as to did you want her to come with you? And now it's quite clear that you would have preferred to have the journey together, but ultimately you were just two different people, I suppose. I think that's the thing, yes. So I, that actually, this, this piece on travel, one of the things that I think was quite prevalent, one of the most prevalent themes throughout the book, and also something that Reebok has done quite well throughout her history was firstly, your absolute single-mindedness to get into the United States. Now, I'd like to unpack why that was so important to you. Was it growth for growth sakes? Was it strategic? Did you know that you had to get there to become a global brand? And the second part of that question is, Reebok's ability to find niches 
like Reeboks, Reebok has always been a major brand, but a brand that's found and created new trends. So can we talk a little bit about that, that the United States, as well as your ability as a brand to just always find from aerobics to CrossFit, you know, it's been, mm -hmm. it's interesting. Well, I think uh, for me, um, I was looking at our, our business. We were a small business because we were in athletics. We missed the opportunity to be in soccer, football. The, by the time Jeff and I managed to get away from Foster's, football was then in the hands of uh, Adidas, Puma, and, and a few of the British manufacturers. The British manufacturers were taking the low end and Adidas was taking the influential end of it. Um, to go in there, we needed money. And the last thing we had was money. We had all the energy, all the talent, and you, you name it, we, we, we could produce a football boot. Um, but I mean, we all know today that you can go anywhere and produce a product, but it's having people buy it, being able to get into the market, being, being in there. Um, so our limitation to the business would be the size we could grow within the United Kingdom. And it, it, you don't need to be a brain surgeon to recognize the fact that the big, the big markets like football, their volume will create so much energy and so much money that they will absorb you. They will swallow you. Eventually, they, no matter how good you are on a small market, the big man will come in and take the market. And we could see signs that uh, Nike, they were starting to come over later on in the 70s. They'd grown, grown big. Adidas were already there, but Nike were more in running than, than Adidas. And so Nike would come in and, and take our, uh, our area. So what we needed to do is to look around where, <clears throat> what market influences the world. And the market that influences the world is the USA. It still does today. It's still that massive. Uh, plus the fact that there's volume. And in, the, in those sort of late 60s days, I, I knew that uh, college and university, they all had coach. And you could go to college on, on a scholarship, on an athletic scholarship. You, you didn't need to be academic. You could go on, on, a, on an athletic scholarship. And that meant volume. I had to get into that market. And, and it so happened that as we started to work hard to get into that market, um, running also became a category that grew. All of a sudden running became something that, a sport that wasn't just athletics, it wasn't just track and field anymore. All of a sudden it was on the road, or vulnerable. all you needed was a pair of shoes and you could enter a race. It was growing, growing massively. It grew to be the biggest uh, of all the sports, <clears throat> which was our, again, Fortunately, we were in that, in that category at that time. So we were there. It's a matter of not letting our passers. Runners World was driving that market. They drove it because everybody, it started off as just a simple black and white single page Runners World. It, it ended up as the glossiest magazine that you could think with photographs of everything. <laughs> and they, they were so influential that they started rating shoes so if you were number one shoe, mm. everybody wanted you to. That in itself was a problem. It was a mistake because I think, uh, I think Nike would probably get it. Adidas were not in, in the running scene at that point. 
they, they, they didn't appear. They were track and field, but they were certainly not in, in road. And uh, did you have so, to, Joe, did you just on that, did you have to contend with corruption, like with a magazine being so powerful, like on, you know, underhanded influence from Nike or Adidas to the publishers? Like, was that going on back then? I would say there was certainly a lot of collusion. I, I wouldn't say there was corruption. Yeah. <laughs> there may well have been. Yeah. But I would not have said that. A lot of collusion. Um, Nike, though, they were in Oregon. And of course, it was, was it San, just north of San Francisco. Uh, that was Bob Anderson with his runner's world. They were, they were close together. They were both Americans. Yeah. Um, so I would say there was a bit of hand in hand working together, yes. Uh, I think that happens in anything. That's right. You, you, go, where, you go where the influence is. <clears throat> so, so they were together. But when, when Bob Anderson came out with his, his number one, number two, if you were a number one, I'm sure Nike did this. Can't quite remember exactly what the, the, the running shoe would be. But uh, Nike, of course, didn't make in America. They, they had to import. And like anything, if all of a sudden your demand goes from, we'll say 500 pairs of shoes uh, a month to 50,000 pairs of shoes, uh, the question is, how do you do it? <laughs> how do you get there? And of course, it takes you six months. Tooling up, getting the factories, getting everybody up to speed. Six months later, you're managing to do it. And then in a few months after that, there's going to be another number one. So the retail trade were really, really uh, upset about this. <clears throat> because by the time they got the shoe, they, they could be left with stock. They're left with this shoe now. Because it wouldn't be the same shoe that would be number one the next year. It would be a different shoe. And uh, so this happened for about two or three years. And I don't know whether it was Bob Anderson himself or somebody persuaded him, you've got to change that. And he changed it to a star rating. So top of the tree, five stars. Now that could be four shoes. It could be four shoes with five stars. That meant instead of just being one winner, five shoes. And I recognized the fact that if I was going to get there, I had to get a five star rated shoe. My first trip to America was 1968. And it took me till 1979 before I actually really got a distributor. I had six in between, and they'd all failed. We'd failed miserably trying to get that working. But once I got the five-star shoe, that was the hook. That was the hook that got us into America, and I got Paul Fireman, and he was a gatekeeper. He was an American. He knew about distribution. So that worked fantastic. And that, that's how we got into that. And as it happened, running was doing quite nicely. But we had a... Um, down in Los Angeles, we had this tech rep called Arnold Martinez. Have you heard of Arnold? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Arnold Martinez. Well, he's a great man. Yeah, he's done a lot of things. And his wife, Frankie, she was coming home full of this, had been to these aerobic classes with her friends. Great. And Arnold said, Well, what's it all about? <laughs> she said, it's exercise to music. It's great. You know, we, we all remember Jane Fonda, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. That happened as a result of what Arnold was doing. But Arnold went down to see one of these classes, saw the instructor in, uh, in trainers, and uh, half the class, the other half class, nothing. 
But Arnhill, that was a light bulb moment as well. Why don't we make a nice white shoe, cushion, soft, just like a glove? And he did. Well, he went back to Paul Fireman and Paul Fireman said, what? We're doing well, look, we're doing well in running. We're, we're doing great. It's fine. Why do we want to make a shoe for these girls jumping about down there in LA? Oh, so really, uh, Paul didn't want to know about it. So Arnold went round to the back door and had a word with the production people. The production people produced him 200 pairs of shoes, which he distributed down there in LA. And like I say, Jane Fonda and she bought a pair of shoes. Can you believe it? You know, that, and these people. So it became Hollywood. It, the trend just suddenly took off. These women, uh, we were not known in, in America. The running fraternity started to know us. We were growing nicely. But in America, yeah, they knew Nike, they knew Adidas. They didn't know Reebok. Adidas, Nike, male, sweaty. Yeah. All of a sudden, this beautiful little company called Reebok making women's shoes and making this nice aerobic shoe. And that's what just took off. So you're saying that, so, so Joe, just on that, you're saying that sometimes it's, it's actually easier to be the smaller unknown player, undefined. Well, certainly for us, yes. And certainly for us, because once you're defined and once you, once you, you pigeonholed, that's you. <clears throat> but uh, all of a sudden Reebok became a woman's shoe in the eyes of America. Then it became a travel shoe. It became a shoe that you were so comfortable. And I, and I think that two things that happened for, for Reebok in, in that changed the sports industry. Okay, Arnold had them made out of glove leather and that was disaster. <laughs> when I heard about it, what glove leather? Can't do that. Because they were trying to use the leather side. We had used suede glove leather for racing shoes. But when you try and take that surface off, you know, glove leather is less than one millimeter in thickness when you start. You try and work on that and you have nothing left. So they just fell apart. And for three months, those shoes were just falling apart. Fortunately, this was LA, this was America. They didn't care. The women loved it. They didn't care. Yeah. They, they give you all the time in the world to get it right. They, the women loved it so much, they would go out. Um, in the rest of the world, they didn't have that disposable income or that attitude. They, they didn't have that. No, if it fell apart, they didn't want to. That know. was an interesting concept you talked about in the book, and I really reflected upon that. The American consumer behavior and the willingness to, to, to give you birth if you make a mistake as a supplier. It's so true. Whereas yeah. in the UK or in Australia, you'd be... You'd, be over. We would have been yes, yeah, we would have been out of business. I think there's no question with something like that. It would have been a killer. Yes, <clears throat> but no, in America, uh, that was that was it, and like the story just exploded from there. So why do I believe in America? Why had I got to go to America? Well, you have it. You know, it's like they give you the opportunity. There is the opportunity. There is the volume. There is the money. Yeah, the, all that was there in America. We did a comparison uh, between America and other markets. And if you put America at 100, uh, I think the UK came in at 15. I think Germany came in at something like 25. And I think Japan came in at something like 30. So that's the comparison of a market. <clears throat> and, you know, for me, we're, we're in Europe, but the minute you cross the channel, languages, culture, all these things are different. You've got to make 
you're Lost. marking each one. Yeah. Yeah. But go to America and that whole, uh, the whole continent, mm. they speak English. Mm. Uh, okay. A little differently on occasions, but uh, you can understand people, mm -hmm. but the attitude, that mental attitude, you know, the attitude of a country growing up of different uh, cultures all coming together uh, in, uh, in an understanding and opportunities. Everybody, you know, the whole concept of America was opportunity. Why did they go with that? Opportunity. So opportunity, I think, is, is steeped into the American psyche. It, it's there. And, and I think that uh, being able to use that, because yeah, there's a lot of us in England who probably have the same psyche, but there's so many who don't. Well, you, so many. you actually touched upon that, Joe, many a times early on in your book about growing up in a culture that was very much steeped in don't rise above your station, right? Mm -hmm. Like there was a real limitation. You talked about that, um, which when, when you talk about America, you, you almost sound like an American, which is interesting. So well, I, I think it is, um, I think it's something that, uh, you know, the people who went to America had that feeling. Okay, they went to escape on a lot of occasions, right. but they went to create. Yes. <clears throat> they went for opportunity. <clears throat> and for me, that, that was the same for Reebok. Um, we, needed, we needed to take that opportunity. I, I think my grandfather had it. I think he, you know, in, in today's world, he, he would have been a champion as well. He would have really, because what he did in his time, uh, since it was so localized, you, you don't recognize it. And I say localized, but he, he had a global business. He was selling shoes all over. He was selling shoes to America, all over Africa. In fact, the Commonwealth. That was, or in those days, the empire, I guess. <laughs> Everybody wanted something and he could make it. So well, he, was selling, he was selling shoes to America. Well, I don't think he, yeah, he was, but uh, Foster's did have a, an, an agreement in America with Yale, Yale University, Bob G and Jack and uh, Frank Ryan. And again, same thing. And, and they distributed Foster's shoes, but they were distributing the, uh, the hands-on. Again, there was no creativity. There was no growth. And uh, whilst I did do, I did connect with Frank Ryan uh, after Foster's closed, he was, probably too old at that time. He was probably in his sixties and I don't think the energy was, there. it's like asking me to set up a, a running shoe company sure. now. <laughs> so <laughs> let, well, let, let's talk about that because at towards the end of the book, you know, when you became a founder, I think that putting myself in your shoes, it would have been very difficult. And I got a sense that it was difficult for you, but you, through the book, you were quite diplomatic about it. What was that like being a founder, yet stranger, as you mentioned in your own company? Well, I, I think when you, um, when you start something with only two people, and then you've got maybe 20,000 people, uh, the amazing thing is, is that there's not that focus anymore. You know, it's nice once you have that focus. And we can go back to Johnny Johnson. And I went in his factory and he took me through the factory on every floor and he spoke to every person and he knew their name. And that amazed me at that time. How do you know all these people? Uh, but there is a limit. 
you know, how many people you know. And, and when, when a company gets as big as Reebok are, you have to have a different uh, mentality. So it's a different drive. Um, the, the drive that I had, the adventure, uh, the challenges, they weren't there. And uh, the connectivity, you don't connect with everybody. You see new faces and people are going by and uh, you know, when, oh, you're Mr. Foster. You know, when you come up and say, oh, Mr. Foster. And you think, he's Joe, you know. <laughs> Joe was part of this company, not Mr. Foster. That's my grandfather. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, I, I think you realize that you're better off than going really farther back and, you know, become a founder. You know, be a founder. And that's, you know, if somebody wants to talk. And even today, they still want to talk. You know, it's, it's quite amazing that some people want to. We, we have, we, we've already addressed, I've already addressed uh, two of the regions of Reebok who've come and said, will you, will you do as a, a, a Q&A? And now we have one for Central Europe, which is coming up in a couple of weeks' time. So the people working for the company just want, since the book's been out, and then I think Reebok have bought about 500 books in, into, the, into the company. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, we did, we did a lot of signing for that because you can't go around. COVID didn't allow signings. So they would come and buy from me. Uh, we got the books and we signed them and we sent them across. And so, yeah, people still want to hear that slight difference. Like you, you read the book. The book is, the book tells a story. But there's inside stories in every story. There's other little bits and pieces that, there's, you know, is left, that's left there because when I started writing the book and I had some help, I needed help because I'm going here and I did that, but I'm still doing that and I did, but I also did that. Oh, yeah, so right. <laughs> yeah. I, I needed help to bring it together to, to keep the story in line. And I could have drifted off to many different things that I did, um, but the story has to be a story. And so, yes, I, I think there are many side stories that are always a uh, 31 years, you can't put it down into 300 pages no. or 80,000 words. You know, there has to be more to it. But what you have to get in the 80,000 words is really how the story went, you know, that, that linear sort of growth mm. and where did it come from, where did it end, and the bits in between, you know, they, they, they get you to the end. Um, and so I can put some things in. But there are personal things, there are other things that, you know, you just don't, uh, they will come out in time. And I think some of these, like we're doing now, and I, I must have done 50 different interviews since, and we go in a different pattern each time. There's a similar drive, but there's a, just a different pattern, a different question. And, uh, and I think that's good, because it allows me <laughs> to tell those bits that I couldn't get, the deviations. Yeah. It, you, you get to re-familiarize with the, the detail in your story. And you just touched on something and it will form part of my last question. The, you talked about Reebok requesting your book uh, internally about 500 copies. And I would imagine part of that is to get Reebok staff to reconnect with the past and actually where Reebok has come from. And we know that Reebok's been recently sold by Adidas. Would you say that Reebok 
has kind of lost her way and is looking for herself? And how do you think that's happened, Joe, if you do think so? Well, I, I think that when, when management gets to a certain size, it has to make some decisions. It has to make decisions how to focus. And if you don't focus, if you don't keep a line and, and you don't keep true to that line, you lose it, you actually lose your way because you have lost your focus. <clears throat> you need somebody to keep pulling you back in. You need something. And that needs to be a few people, people who really know and who really own that journey. And I think it was probably mid-90s. By the mid-90s, I'd been left about five years. Okay, I, I keep, they keep bringing me back for different... Consulting. Not for any, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but uh, I think Reebok didn't have uh, a plan, didn't have a purpose, and didn't know how to uh, commit to that. I think the biggest problem with that is that uh, once, um, once aerobics took over, really the management didn't control the company. The company controlled the management. The growth, the growth was so big, so fast, rapid, <clears throat> that nobody sat down to say, just a minute, we don't mind this. I, I once remember talking to Paul, and Paul said, look, Joe, I know how to stop this. But if I do, I don't know how to start it again. And, you know, th these, these are the problems. When, when the company is just growing, it's... At the end of it, what pieces do you grab hold of? Mm. When you start to think that we're going to plateau, and we can't plateau because if you plateau, you start going down. You know, you've got to really have a plan as to which way are we going? What piece of this business, what piece of the of sport do we own? And what should we own? And I think somewhere around that didn't happen. And it took until 2005 before Adidas bought the company. And Adidas didn't buy Reebok to grow, to grow Reebok. They, they, grew, they bought it and you can't blame them. They wanted momentum in America and Reebok gave them that momentum, helped with that momentum. But Reebok stagnated, Reebok's there. He, they paid too much for it, I think, to let it die. <laughs> and, and, uh, and okay. It's, it's not seen as much these days, but uh, the sale of Reebok is probably going on. I don't know, it hasn't, to my knowledge, it hasn't been sold yet, but uh, I think there are numerous people talking. Um, and, and, I, and I guess if they want to talk to me, it would be fine, but you know, get a focus. Focus on where you, you can't be a big global sports brand in, in every category immediately you know, you've got Nike who are 20 something billion mm. and Adidas who are nearly the same um, and Reebok is down at 2 billion so you've got to focus and start to grow maybe you look back on where you should focus from where you should start so I think Reebok will have a good opportunity I think Adidas have got to the point where they look at Reebok now it's not contributing much if anything to their sales um, so for them to sell it, they're so big now that they say, well, if Reebok do start to grow, it's going to take them 10 years to even get anywhere because there's nowhere near Nike and nowhere near Adidas as far but as the side. It's an interesting thing you just brought up because it, it makes me recall to the story where, because effectively what you said is Adidas bought Reebok, not 
because they had a passion about Reebok, but it was an entry point into the American market. And th that actually happened. Th there was part of that in the early piece with Reebok when Paul got the Englishman involved, right? And I think there was that piece you wrote in the book around the Englishman had already a business and they, he wasn't so much in interested in getting Reebok into the US, but it was about using manufacturing capability. So I guess what I'm saying is it's, it's really interesting that when a business buys or when you sell a business to a firm to kind of understand what the intention of that firm you're selling to is. You know, are, are they actually looking to grow? And I guess if you're, if you're selling the business, you may not care, right? I, I, think, that, I think that probably was the end because you, you've got shareholders. Uh, and I think at the end for, for Reebok, if, if you're not really progressing and not really growing, you, you sell for as much money as you can. Either way, you can't blame Adidas, you can't blame the shareholders. <laughs> you know, this, these are decisions you make. Um, if your company has not been really growing, it's either a lack of passion or your passion has been dulled or you know, it's been like taken away from you. So you, you don't know how to keep the passion. You're better off taking the money maybe. Um, selling to uh, Adidas, not the right fit because you're both in the same channel. Uh, so Adidas have to stop you doing certain things so that Adidas can grow. And you can't blame anybody for that. That's what, that's what you put your money down for. <clears throat> so Adidas did that. Um, okay, so I am Reebok and my passion is still there for Reebok. I think there's still chances for Reebok, but <clears throat> it was obviously by the mid nineties that the management was really not in control. I hadn't, hadn't picked up from that growth, from that business growth, hadn't really picked up and taken back control of it. Uh, the business was still controlling the, uh, the company and, and it was going nowhere. And, and I don't think it grew very much through the 90s uh, until just over 4 billion maybe, uh, and, until Adidas were willing to pay $3.8 billion for it. So you sell its turnover <clears throat> and without any, uh, without any restrictions or whatever. So the company is going to be in the wilderness for a while. And although Adidas have tried to grow it, and I think Adidas have done two really good things for Reebok. <clears throat> and it took them some time. But number one is they, uh, they decided to have an archive. Adidas had had an archive for many years. Nice. And uh, they did recognize that having an archive was a good thing. So they built an archive. And I had lots and lots of stuff, you know, in the attic and loft all over the place. And so now and I send it to America. So now it's in Boston in an archive and it won't get lost you know, when, uh, when I'm not around anymore and things, things start getting diluted and lost, number one. Number two is that when, <clears throat> when they came in, uh, they actually changed the name and uh, over time they changed the logo to a Delta from, uh, you know, uh, from the silhouette that we have now and the, um, <clears throat> the, the recent one. Um, they, they changed that. But... Two years ago, I think it's three years ago, I think they got a new marketing man. And uh, he came back with the original. He, he decided to take away all these different changes of lettering. Now we have the Mototectura 
the original Eterin that I had way back down there in the 70s. They brought that back and they brought back the, uh, the vector. <clears throat> so now we see, as, as on the book, we've now got the vector and, and we're not, we, we've gone back to something that people can recognize. Mm. When you turn around, you, you change it, all these different name styles, different logos. You know, I, I usually use the, uh, I usually use Ford as an example. You look at Ford, <clears throat> you see that lettering. You see it in a, a blue oval and that's Ford. You don't see anything else. You, you hardly even see designs. You may see the Mustang or whatever, but it's, it's identifying one, one look, one silhouette. Uh, and, and I think that that's what, again, Adidas brought back the one silhouette. Mm -hmm. and, and I think they're feeling the benefits. So I think the price they were looking for, the price I heard was about $2.4 billion. Um, and there have been numerous people hinted, Shaq O'Neill along with them, that Mr. P or whatever it is. <clears throat> so it may become is it, a black-owned company. <clears throat> I see nothing wrong in that. I see there's good well, there's, opportunities. Well, there's an intrinsic connection with the hip-hop street rap community right it's it's yeah. built quite quite a bit of a, a niche in the the community there so you never know and uh i think reebok's done very well in leveraging influencers non-traditional influencers you know yes. and i think that's what reebok has always done very well they found a way to compete with the big players not on their turf right and hopefully we can see them continue to do that Oh, I think they will. I think it's going to be very interesting. <clears throat> I think what's going to be interesting is uh, if a new buyer really wants to become a global big uh, brand. <clears throat> Opportunities are there, but that's that. You've got to you've got to own a piece of football, soccer in America. You've got to own a big piece of that because that is probably the one global uh, sport that drives a lot of things. So you go, and that's an expensive thing to get into. But, you know, I, I think with Mr. P, there's a basketball player there, uh, next, and, the, and there's uh, Shaq O'Neal. You know, there's Iverson. I think they have some, some inroads into one or two specialized sports. Plus, you know, they could be uh, uh, on the side, like you say, you know, the, uh, the hip-hop side of it. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> it'd, be, it'd be very interesting to see the people sit down and think of some plans and do something different. Okay, life and, is out there. And, and I have no, and I have no doubt you'll receive a phone call to come and do the inaugural speech at the informed uh, management party that they have. But um, well, it would be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> you'd have to go. It, it, oh, I, I would definitely go. Yes. And you, you, you could take um, Julie as well. We would both go, no doubt. Julie could. <laughs> Well, Joe, look, I really, really want to thank you so much for your time. Um, again, it's, it's really quite bizarre and surreal to be sitting here having a conversation with you as a kid growing up in the, in the late 80s. Uh, it was all about saving as much money as you could to go buy some tennis shoes and some sneakers. And I never in a million years again would have thought that I've been enjoying, uh, would be enjoying such a conversation as I am right now, Joe. So again, thank you so much for your time been a pleasure for me and uh, it's great and I, I hope that more people 
know and learn about how Reebok began and its whole life. Uh, and I said, one of the reasons for writing the book was because Wikipedia and lots of uh, entries had different ways that Reebok started from, you know, that we just changed the J.D. Foster name, lots of things, but the story is in there now. So one of the reasons for writing it was that. And now we've written it, we want it to be a number one. We so where, where, can we found, where can we find Shoemaker? I know I listen to it on Audible is how I tend to consume information now because it's quick for me. Where, yes. how can we find the book, Joe? The book is on Amazon. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't know how many big retailers are open in, in the States or wherever, but certainly our attack is to try and get into, into the US. Yeah. And uh, if you buy it on Amazon, in fact, only at the end of last week, we had the launch of the hardback. Right. The, uh, the export had been in, uh, in America for a while, uh, <clears throat> but the launch of the hardback came out last week. And uh, I think we seem to be selling quite well. But uh, the other thing is to get, uh, get a lot more visibility for the book. We always like visibility for the brand. Now we like visibility for the book. And uh, the consummate marker, marketer. The consummate marketer, Joe. There we go. <laughs> well, thank yes. you so much for your time, Joe. I really appreciate it. And we will be talking soon. I hope so. And it's been great, Ranjit. Nice. Thank you for having a conversation.